a very sincere shalom to you as you have turned in to this month's edition of The Gathering Storm. I'm Dr. Paul Benoit, and it's my privilege to study with you today the Word of God. And we're going to be looking at a very critical passage of Scripture found in the prophet Ezekiel. It seems that most of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ wonder about how close we are to Jesus' coming. Are we close to the end of times, we ask? Kind of reminds me of many of us as parents when we had uh, little kids and we'd go on a road trip. Um, It's a two-day trip, but we're about uh, 10 minutes into the trip and we hear a little voice from the back saying, Are we there yet? Well, that's a question we have, too. Are we there yet? Are we close to the end of the end times? And uh, frankly, because we are uh, believing, and rightly so, I think, that uh, we are in the end of the end times, we look for signs, we look for indications that uh, maybe the Lord Jesus is coming very, very soon for us. Well, this sometimes leads to uh, speculation about um, this uh, earthquake or tsunami or climate change or uh, events in the United States, that these are uh, indications of um, the end times. And what we need to remember is that uh, so many of these things have been uh, true year after year, century after century. But the one thing that, uh, to me, indicates that we are in the end of the end times is the fact that the, of national Israel being back in the land that was given to them by God. Um, Israel must be back in the land in order for the end time events spelled out in Daniel, Revelation, and uh, so many other prophetic portions. They must be back in their land for these events to take place. Uh, For example, the coming tribulation period is primarily focused on the nation of Israel. Uh, True, uh, the whole world's involved, but it is the nation of Israel that is the primary focus of the tribulation period, and it is Israel back in the land. God has promised to save his people and bring them into the new covenant that Jeremiah 31 talked about. And that really is the main purpose of the tribulation period. So Israel is central. It is absolutely the center of biblical prophecy. Now, it does seem to me that the stage is set, and uh, we now really wait for the curtain to go up. And when this happens, uh, very swiftly, there are going to be things that are uh, take place that are unprecedented in human history, uh, resulting in uh, incredible judgments, but also incredible levels of salvation. Today in our study, we want to focus on an important passage of Scripture that would point to the fact that we are getting close to the end and that the stage really is set ready for the play to begin when the curtain goes up. We want to take a look at a passage that has become a focus of attention for many, and I think rightly so. And that is the passage found in Ezekiel's book, uh, discussing God's dealings with Israel in the end times. So if you can take your Bible and go to Ezekiel 34 to 39. Now, if you're in your car, please don't do that. But we are going to uh, look primarily today at chapters 38 and 39, which is the uh, famous Gog-Magog battle that uh, is uh, very significant in the end of times, and the passage itself indicates why it is uh, so significant. But for that to be clear, in other words, for that discussion in chapters 38 and 39 to be clear, as we can make it, we need to go back all the way to chapter 34 and uh, sort of take a running start 
at uh, chapters 38 and 39. So, we begin with Ezekiel chapter 34. So, what we find uh, when we come to Ezekiel's prophecy is that Ezekiel is... uh, has been taken in a deportation back to Babylon, along with uh, thousands, tens of thousands of other uh, Jewish people from the land in the Babylonian captivity. And Israel's great question at this point in their national history is simply, is there any hope for us? We've blown it again and again, There's not a one of God's 613 commandments that we haven't broken many times. Is there any hope for us? And the prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, say, yes, there is hope, but not because you're deserving of of anything. God is faithful to his covenant promises, and so that's why there is hope for you. So, coming to Ezekiel chapter 34, it begins this way. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And what you have in the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 34 is God's uh, censoring of the bad leaders of Israel. They exploited God's flock, his people Israel. They have neglected God's flock. They have been terrible leaders. They have been selfish, they have been authoritarian, and they could care less that the flock has suffered. And so, as a result of that, uh, and this is the turning point now in uh, the message of Ezekiel, as he now uh, heads for the restoration of Israel, God says in the middle of verse 10 of Ezekiel 34, So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I shall deliver my flock from their mouth that they may not be food for them. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And so there's going to be a change in leadership that takes place. God is dismissing these bad leaders, these terrible shepherds, and he is now going to shepherd the flock of God. Now, what's interesting and I think rather significant, is that in Ezekiel 34 to 39, the section that we're looking at today with a focus on chapters 38 and 39, 70 times, that's seven zero, 70 times in this section of Ezekiel 34 to 39, God says, I will. I will feed them. I will bring them from the... I will, I will, I will, I will. Seventy times. I think most of us would agree, uh, believing the scriptures and believing what God says, is that when if God were to say at one time, just once, God said, I'm going to do this, I will be doing this in the future, we would say, well, that, that does it. God says he is going to do it. But when he does it 70 times, uh, that is communicating very powerfully that God has committed himself to do certain things for the nation of Israel. Now, what is he going to do? Well, um, 
he, he begins by pointing out that what he is going to do in light of the captivity that they are in, in light of not only the Babylonian captivity, but you know, 130 years earlier, the northern tribes of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians and scattered all over that part of the world. And now the Babylonians have come along and uh, done the same thing. What he's going to do, he says, verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples. So God is going to get his scattered people, gather them from the countries, and bring them where? To their own land. That's where he's bringing them, is back to their own land again. So one thing that God has committed himself to doing is finding all his scattered sheep. They're everywhere amongst the Gentile nations. And what he's going to do is to bring them back to the nation of Israel, to the land of Israel. He will feed them in rich pastures on the fountain on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. And then he's going to take care of his sheep, unlike the bad shepherds who ignore them. Uh, he is going to bind the, the broken, strengthen the sick, feed them, and so on. And then in the next verses, he is uh, indicates that he's going to be um, evaluating the sheep and the goats. And um, what he is uh, hinting at here is uh, the spiritual return of Israel back to himself. So he is going to not only bring them back to the land, he is going to bring them back to uh, himself. And that becomes... Uh, uh, a theme of this section, which we're going to see how he develops that. Now, it's interesting that um, the the spiritual restoration of Israel uh, is going to follow the uh, geographic restoration. And we know that today, uh, Israel, that somewhere between 75 and 100 different nations Israel has come from uh, other countries under their Gentile nations and returned back to their land. 75 to 100 different nations uh, where they have been scattered. Now, with that general statement in mind, uh, he's going to bring them back, but it isn't just um, going to be um, the, the return back to the land, he's going to establish a new governmental setup. And uh, he now begins to reveal that, which he will develop in the chapters to come. He says in verse 23 of chapter uh, 34, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so David is going to be ruling over Israel. Now, David will be ruling under Messiah, which is why David here is called a prince um, of Israel and not the king, per se, because Jesus Messiah will be the king. And then he tells us in general terms that things just are going to be different uh, amongst Israel and the nations of the earth. Verse 28, and again, we're still in chapter 34, and they will no longer be a prey to the nations. They will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. And, note this, they will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Now, that's not true today. Uh, they, it was not true when they came back from the Babylonian captivity. This still has not been fulfilled. But the point that 
he is making here is that after God gets through working on Israel's behalf, the things that are mentioned in these verses of being afraid and enduring insults, that is never going to happen to them again. And then he mentions in verse 30, then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that the house of Israel are my people, declares the Lord. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, I am your God, declares the Lord God. So in chapter 34, he talks about the restoration that he himself is going to do. He is going to restore them back to their land from all over the world and he is also going to restore them back to them himself. Now, when we come to chapter 35 and all the way into chapter 36, so from 35 chap- verse 1 to chapter 36 verse 5, you have the fact that um, this restoration is not going to go unchallenged. The uh, there is a hostility that comes from Mount Seir and from Edom, which, of course, is a reference in Ezekiel to the Arab nations. And there is tremendous Arab hostility and judgment is going to take place. Now, note a couple of things here. Um, verse 10 of chapter uh, 35. Because you have said these two nations referring to Israel and Judah, these two lands will be mine. This is the Arab nation speaking, the descendants of Esau and Ishmael. We will possess them. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, I will deal with you according to your anger and your envy, your hatred for Israel. And so their anger is clearly spoken of, their envy for what Israel has. And the Lord says in verse 12, I've heard I've heard your revilings. I've heard that you've spoken against the mountains of, of the Lord. Um, and they say, Israel, they are given to us for food. Verse 13, and you have spoken arrogantly against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard. So, God is very much aware that there is going to be resistance, strong resistance uh, to his work of restoring, restoring Israel back to the land. Uh, look at chapter 36 in verse 5, uh, which, which is a, uh, is, what a picture of, of the present day even. Verse 5, chapter 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. They've apportioned my land. So, Uh, What do they talk about today? The occupied territory. Well, it isn't Israel who is the offender. It is these Arab nations who have appropriated God's land. And they've done so with great joy. And they want to drive Israel into the sea, drive them out as a prey. And so, as Ezekiel's developing this concept of Israel's restoration it becomes very clear that uh, things are not going to be easy. There's going to be resistance. But to come down now to chapter 36, verses 8 through 15, and in 36, 8 through 15, he is speaking of, of Israel's future prosperity and what God is going to do. And that's one of the things in Ezekiel 38 when we start talking about the Gog-Magog battle, one of the reasons given for the invasion of Israel by this northern coalition of nations is Israel's wealth and Israel's prosperity. And so um, that's exactly what Ezekiel uh, 36, 8 through 15 
uh, talks about. Now, getting to the point of why God is going to restore Israel in verses 16 through 21, uh, again, this is still chapter 36, what God does is spell out the fact that Israel has been a monumental failure. They were supposed to represent the Lord Jehovah to the nations of the world. They were to be a light to the Gentiles, and they were not that at all. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 20, when they came to the nations where they were sent, they profaned my holy name. Verse 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations where they went. So why is God going to restore Israel? Well, it's not because Israel deserves it. It's not because they have been a a grand and glorious and holy people. Uh, Just the opposite. They've been an embarrassment to the Lord Jehovah. Uh, They are the chosen people. They are the Lord God's people. But they haven't behaved like it. They've been idolatrous. They have been such a tremendous failure. So they have profaned God's name. Now, when we come to chapter 36 and verse 22, um, we have now a um, the fog is beginning to uh, lift. The focus is becoming clearer. He's told us already, that God has committed himself to restore Israel. And now he is going to explain why he's doing it and how he's going to do it as well. So let's look, um, and this is all in preparation for chapters 38 and 39. In chapter 36 um, and verse 22, why is it? that God is going to restore Israel geographically and spiritually. Here's the answer. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord uh, your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. God is going to be faithful to his covenant promises. That's what he's talking about in his holy name. He's given his word that he is going to bless Israel. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Are you getting the idea that Israel has has spoken against, profaned the nation, uh, before profaned the Lord in front of the nations of the world. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. The means for the nations of the world coming to know the true God is going to be through Israel and God's dealings with them. Remember way back in Genesis 12, when God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel, with Abraham, that three times in that section in Genesis, God says that in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It has always been God's intention to save Gentiles. The Old Testament is focused on on God's dealings with Israel because they are the vehicle that God is going to drive uh, to uh, into the next age in which will come about the salvation of Israel but also the salvation of Gentile nations. So, <clears throat> how is this going to happen? Notice verse 24. Now we're getting into greater clarity. The focus is becoming clearer. And um, verses 24 and 25 are immensely helpful. This again is chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Well, 
what's he talking about? Miami Beach? Someplace in Africa? No, no, no. Verse 28. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know exactly where that land is, and we know the borders of that land and so on. The land area is very, very clear. So I'm going to bring you into your own land. Now, verse 25 is a very pivotal verse. And if you have your Bibles open in front of you, circle that first word there. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe my ordinances. The word then tells us very clearly, unmistakably, that there is a order, a chronology to the restoration of Israel. First will come the geographic uh, restoration of the nation of Israel back to their land again, the land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as we look at the nation of Israel today, there are, again, between 75 and 100 different nations that the people residing in the land of Israel have come from. Um, They are being restored back to their land. Then, he says, then will come the spiritual restoration of Israel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I'm going to put my spirit within you. And so God is going to, first of all, restore Israel physically, geographically, and then he will restore them spiritually. First, restoration back to the Lord or to the land, and secondly, restoration back to um, the Lord himself. So, in this section of Ezekiel, to just pause and reflect a moment, this section is answering the great question that Israel had in Ezekiel's day, is, is God done with us? Is there any hope for us? And the answer is, no, God is not done with us. And yes, there's hope. But it's not because you deserve to be blessed. It is because of God's commitment in that unconditional, eternal Abrahamic covenant. Because of God's commitment to the fulfillment of that covenant, he is going to restore you. And the restoration will be in two phases. Phase one, part one, is the physical restoration back to the land. And God himself is going to do that. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, this restoration is going to be very noticeable. And then when that is taken place uh, to a sufficient degree, when Israel is back in the land in sufficient numbers, then they will be born by means of the Spirit. In other words, they will be restored back to the Lord God himself. And this, as you are probably aware, is the primary purpose of the tribulation period. The primary purpose is salvation, uh, not judgment. So, with that as a basic background, uh, God spells it out uh, in a most uh, wonderful and helpful illustration and one that most of us are familiar with, with, and that's found in chapter 37, and the very famous vision of the dry bones. So, if you're looking at your Bible, look over at chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel records, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, 
they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Well, the answer to that question is obvious. Um, bones that are been around a long time, that are bleached, there's no skin, no flesh, no sinews, no muscle. You're just dealing with bones, and they're bleached bones, dried bones. The answer is obvious, no. Those aren't going to rise up again. But when it's God asking the question, Ezekiel's been around enough as a prophet to know that there he may not know the answer to this one. And so he wisely says, O Lord God, thou knowest. And God responds to him and said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I've always wondered what Ezekiel thought. He had uh, preached to a lot of dead congregations in his lifetime, but none as dead as this one. And as he was to mount his little rock pulpit there in the valley, he looked out and there were bleached bones scattered all over the place. And now he is supposed to deliver a message to the bones. Verse 4, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh to grow, and cover you with sin, put breath in you. Verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. So there's a couple things to observe here. First of all, that the coming together of the bones is a process that's noticeable. I mean, why in the world would we be told that there's rattling and uh, noise? Well, because this isn't a stealth operation. And one of the things that we must uh, uh, agree to is that no matter what one's theological persuasion is concerned, the, the nation of Israel's restoration back to the land is obvious to all. Is there anyone on planet Earth or in the United Nations who doesn't recognize that Israel is now back in the land and that they've come from all over the place? No, they've come, they've come back together. It's a noticeable process, not some stealth event. So Ezekiel observes this coming together of the bones, and uh, all of a sudden uh, he, he looks down, and there's a skeleton lying there, all the bones in the proper place. So I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, flesh grew covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, say to the sons of man, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. And the um, the Hebrew word for breath is ruah, and it's a word that means breath, wind, spirit, much like the Greek word pneuma, used by the Lord Jesus in John 3 in his discussion with Nicodemus, uh, means breath, wind, or spirit. And so what you have here is the the coming together of the um, nation of Israel physically. It's not just a skeleton. Now it has become a corpse covered with skin, but no breath. And so... Ezekiel continued to preach, and then the wind, the spirit, the breath of God comes down the valley and enters into the corpse, and Israel is now alive spiritually, which is the picture. Israel is to be saved and brought into the new covenant. Uh, Jesus made a point that's very important in John, uh, in um, excuse me, Matthew 24 where he made it clear that you are not going to see me again, Israel, until you acknowledge that I am Messiah, 
So the second coming of Jesus to the earth depends upon Israel being a believing nation. And that's exactly what's going to take place in the tribulation period. Israel is going to know the Lord. Chapter 37 and verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you. You will come to life. I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now, he's going to do uh, a great work of restoring Judah and Israel back to the land. They're going to be, as verse 22 of chapter 37 says, I'll make one nation. Uh, They're going to have one king. And um, the king... Uh, is referred to as David here. And David is both a prince and a king. He is a king over Israel. And he's also, but he's the prince under Messiah. And uh, there's no reason, by the way, that this shouldn't be a reference to um, to David. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing in the text which says that this stands for something else. So um, when it's all said and done, Verse 28, the last verse of chapter 37 says, And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. You see, once Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom, it is eternal in the sense that never again will Satan rule, never again will mankind rule, but it is in fact the rule of God in two phases. First, what we call the Messianic Age or Millennial Kingdom. When Jesus comes back, that's established. And John, 20, John tells us in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, that it will be a thousand-year period. Uh, Ezekiel didn't know that. Daniel didn't know that. None of the Old Testament prophets knew that. But it's given to us in Revelation. Well, after the thousand years is completed, which is the... Um, time that God is going to give to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, then we transition into the eternal kingdom of God on a new earth, new heavens and new earth. And uh, God is going to rule uh, in that setting. But we come now to Ezekiel 38 and 39, because here's the question. Okay, God is going to restore Israel, okay? And he's going to restore them back to the land, and it's going to be a process, um, a noticeable process. He's going to take them from all the nations of the earth, or many of them at least, 75 to 100, bring them back into the land again. And then he's going to restore them back to himself, or spiritually. But here's the question. Israel today... 1,900 years after the coming of Jesus Messiah, Israel's no different today than they were when they rejected Jesus and crucified him. The nation of Israel today, while you have, of course, the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox, they're a very small minority, and you do have more Jewish people coming to faith in Jesus Messiah, but again, a very, very small number. The majority in Israel are social Jews. They keep various feasts, but it is a very secular people, a very secular nation. Um, An awful lot of atheists and agnostics uh, living in Israel. So after 1900 years, really spiritual restoration doesn't look like much progress has been made in 1900 years. But remember, God says, I will do these things. I will restore Israel first back to their land and then back to myself. So what will, after 1900 years, bring about the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel? And that is what's now going to be described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. What's going to trigger 
the beginning of Israel's spiritual restoration, the regeneration of that uh, nation, person by person individually, is going to be this coming battle. I want to point your attention to a pivotal verse found in chapter 39 and verse 22. The house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Let me read that again. The house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. What day? Well, the day that has been discussed beginning in chapter 38 and verse 1 up until this point. What is going to be the trigger mechanism that brings Israel back to the Lord? It is going to be this incredible battle, what we call the Gog-Magog battle, the battle that's described in chapters 38 and 39. Let me read the first few verses and then we will work our way through And uh, we'll point out that when you look at chapters 38 and 39, you make an interesting observation, and that is there's about eight different things in these chapters that must be in place um, for all of this to, to come about. And what's interesting is that all eight of them, in fact, have taken place. In other words, the stage is set for the raising of the curtain, And the end times, apparently, are upon us. And the end of the end times are here, and we'll see a little bit of that. So, again, the beginning of Israel turning to the Lord, according to chapter 39, uh, is the Gog-Magog battle. And the Lord is now, with that battle, beginning to set apart Israel in the eyes of the nations. That's why in chapter 39, verse 21, I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the nations of the world are going to be very impressed with what takes place here, which tells us that this is something going to be far out of the ordinary. Let's uh, look together at the first six verses of chapter 38 as the setting is given to us. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog in the land of Magog. Now, this is an individual named Gog. He is the prince uh, or chief prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And so you're to prophesy against him. So he initially is the focus of this prophecy. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your, to your jaws, and I will bring you out. Um <clears throat> You and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them, splendidly or um, highly equipped. A great company with buckler, shield, all of them wielding swords. And then he describes this northern coalition. Persia, which is um, the ancient name for modern-day Iran, do keep that in mind, Iran, Ethiopia, Put, which is uh, kind of the area in North Africa where Libya is found and other nations. Gomer, with all its troops. Beth Togarma, from the remotest parts of the north, with all its troops and many people with you. Uh, In verse 15, by the way, he also says, You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north. So... When you look at um, the description of the 
um, coalition. Um, the focus is on Gog, and um, this is the title of the leader of that nation that will lead this invasion. And what's important to know, notice is that uh, it is unusual that twice it is said that do you come, Gog, and Magog, and so on, you will come from the remote parts of the north. In other words, that's basically saying from as far north as you can possibly go. Now keep in mind that the great invasions of of Israel were always from the north. I mean, I'm, they had some scuffles with Pharaoh and Egypt in the south, but the Babylonian captivity, uh, the uh, coming of Assyria, Persia, the Greeks with Alexander, all came from the north. This is not simply a northern invasion, but it is from the farthest most parts of the north. And so we not only have names given, but we have a geographic designation. And if you get out a map, you'll notice that Moscow, Russia, is directly north of Jerusalem. And it is really the only country that is in the extreme north. Now keep in mind, when these names are given, the geographic boundaries of modern-day nations of Ukraine and Turkey and all of these are not the same as what we have here. We know the general area, but here you have um, uh, from the farthest most parts of the north. And so probably that would uh, uh, include Ukraine. Uh, That maybe this is telling us a little how, how that war comes out. But at any rate, so he does say that um, I'm going to, uh, uh, you will be summoned, verse 8, after many days in the latter years. And you'll, down at, that was, that's verse 8. Verse 16 says, And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land. So, <clears throat> um, just a second, let's, Go over these names real quickly. The nations that are involved, you have to really go back to Genesis 10, to the table of nations there, to get a feel for these ancient nations. But Magog, I believe, is looking at Russia. These were called Scythians by the Greeks. They settled in Central Asia, Southern Russia, and present-day Islamic nations like Ukraine. Um the words Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal are ancient tribes who occupied the area of modern-day Russia. And so while the debate sometimes goes on, um, recent um, uh, studies have really clarified that, yeah, we're looking at Russia here and Russia's leader, not only from the name but also from uh, the geographic location. And then you have these other nations, Persia, which, as we've mentioned, uh, Persia was, I think it was into, up until about 1938-39, somewhere in there. Uh, Persia was changed its name to Iran. And so Iran is deeply involved uh, with this. You have Kush and Put. These are nor- uh, northern uh, African nations. Uh, Gomer, maybe Turkey, maybe Germany, we're not sure. Uh, Beth Togomar, uh, peoples of Turkey and Central Asia, and many other peoples that are said. Um, uh, many peoples, verse 6, with you, um, which would probably today include other Islamic nations. Now, <clears throat> there's a, a couple of things that we, we ought to look at. Um, God is the one who's going to initiate this battle. He says it numerous times. Verse 8, for example, you will be summoned. I, verse 16, will shall bring you up against my land. Uh, you have statements like, 
chapter 39 and verse 2. I shall turn you around, drive you on, take you up against for the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. God is in charge. He is sovereign. This is not um, the decision of uh, Russia or Iran or any other group of nations saying, let's attack Israel. Oh, that's in their heart to be sure. But it almost seems that they're reluctant when the moment in time comes to do this. But God is basically saying, after Israel is back in the land in sufficient numbers, okay, it's time now to complete my restoration. I'm going to bring them back to my to myself. And by the way, uh, Gog, come on, get down into the land. I'm going to drag you down there if necessary. And that's exactly uh, what God is going to do. Now, this huge invading force, which is simply described in terms of being uh, fully equipped, uh, they come like a storm. And we've seen these, haven't we, in uh, pictures on with the weather. A storm like a tornado or hurricane roaring in, something that cannot be resisted. There's no way that you can stand outside and, and fight off a tornado or a hurricane. And that's that's the picture here. You're going to come against Israel. Verse 9, you will go up, you will come like a storm. You'll be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. And Israel, who up to this point has been fairly confident uh, in their military abilities, is going to realize that they're basically doomed. That this is, invasion is so big, this is not a, a little Hezbollah camp that's coming against them, or someone from the Gaza Strip firing a few missiles. This is a huge, overwhelming invading force, which is designed to destroy them totally and completely, and to fulfill what the Arab nations of chapter 35 have always wanted, and that is to drive Israel out of their land, to annihilate them, to remove them. And so they are coming up against Israel. Now, we'll get to the things that have to be in place. But what's interesting is what God does when this, as he defends his people uh, zealously. Verse 19 of chapter 38. And in my zeal and my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, the day of the invasion, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And we can imagine a tremendous earthquake, uh, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis. But what it's going to do, as earthquakes have a tendency to do, is to bring fear and confusion. And that's what God is going to do with this earthquake, bringing confusion to Gog. Verse 20, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men that are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. You kind of see a, a tsunami in there, don't you? With the, um, uh, the fish of the sea and so on. The mountains will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. It's an incredible um, earthquake. We don't know what it is on the Richter scale, but an incredible earthquake. But I want you to notice then, in verse 21, that God does what he did back in the days of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. Remember when Gideon and his 300 were facing 135,000 Midianites? And God confused them, and they began to kill one another off. Verse 21, I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And on top of that, verse 22, pestilence and blood are going to rain on him with these things. A torrential rain of hailstone, fire, and brimstone. So God is going to use his creation, and it's going to be so obvious that this is not just global warming. This is an unusual display of God's power. 
and people are going to recognize that it is the Lord God of Israel who is doing this, bring disease upon them. Um, you know, when our troops in the Second World War would would get uh, malaria, uh, dysentery, and so on, uh, they were incapable of fighting. Well, God's going to do that. And the bottom line is that God is going to destroy this invading force and mark my words, that is, mark Ezekiel's words, that ultimately this is going to be uh, as seen as God's judgment. It is not simply a bad set of circumstances. When is this or where is this going to take place? It's going to take place on the mountains of Israel. It is going to be in the land of Israel. And then it is going to be so devastating. Verse um, 9 says that though, then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out, make fires with the weapons, that is, of those who had uh, entered, burn them, both shields, bucklers, bows, arrows, war clubs, spears. And for seven years they will make fires of them. So great is the devastation that you have seven years of cleanup which is an important verse in determining when the Gog-Magog battle takes place. Now, when this uh, battle occurs, which brings about the spiritual restoration of Israel, Ezekiel describes the situation in Israel at the time of the invasion. And here are eight things that Ezekiel 38 and 39 reveals. I'm going to walk through these kind of quickly. Number one, when this invasion takes place, Israel exists as a nation. And they exist as a nation because of warfare. And what Ezekiel is saying is, in chapter 38 and verse 8, a land that is restored from the sword. Um, Israel has been a continual waste, but the people brought out of the land of the nations they live securely, and so on. Um, Israel came about, um, granted, because the United Nations divvied up the land, but when they declared a nation, uh, themselves as a nation, warfare immediately took place, and Israel was outmanned and outgunned, uh, 50 to 1, just about, by the Arab nations that attacked, and yet they won. Israel, number one, exists as a nation because of warfare. Number two, as we've already seen, Israel is gathered from the Gentile nations again and again in this section, including uh, chapter 38, verse 8, and again, from 75 to 100 nations. That's true in the land today. Number three, Israel was gathered to the land in unbelief. And Ezekiel 39.22 makes that clear. Israel is not restored as a believing nation. They are restored in their unbelief, and that still largely exists today. The fourth thing is that the situation in Israel at the time of invasion is that Israel used to be a wasteland, but it is now a growing and prosperous nation. Chapter 38, verse 8, verse 12. Number five, Israel will possess great wealth, chapter 38, verses 12 and 13. In fact, that is part of the motivation for why the uh, Gog and Magog decide to invade. Verse 12, to capture spoil and seize plunder. Verse 13, capture spoil, seize plunder, carry away silver and gold, take away cattle, goods to capture great spoil. And, of course, it's speaking of wealth in the uh, uh, terminology of that day. And the sixth thing is that Israel will be hated by all the nations. And uh, that's seen in chapter 35 and also in chapter 36, particularly verses 4 and 5. This is not going to be a time when it's going to be everybody loving Israel. No, just the opposite. The seventh thing, that the seventh situation, is that it, Russia, Iran, and others uh, presented in the region uh, will come in great numbers. And we are seeing that, aren't we? Who is occupying Syria, Lebanon, and that part of the world? 
it is really Syria and do not underestimate what Russia is doing as well. Russia and Iran are poised uh, militarily. They're getting ready uh, to enter into this land. The eighth thing, and this has been the more controversial one, the eighth thing is that when this takes place, Israel will be living securely. And this has been a problem. When has Israel, since they became a nation, ever lived securely? Uh, Are they living securely today? Hardly. Um, Do you really think that in the next few years they could be living securely? Not with the hostility that's described, um, particularly by Ezekiel himself in chapters 35 and 36. Sometime back, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum made a, a very helpful observation that the word securely um, carries with it the idea that um, Israel is living not securely in the sense that everything's peaceful, but living confidently um, that... Uh, that Hebrew word um, is the idea of not living peacefully, per se, but living confidently in their own strength. And that really is true of Israel today. Um, Israel has great confidence in their air force, in their tank corps, in their nuclear capabilities. So they are living confidently. So all eight of these things that Ezekiel mentions are true today. So are we near to the end? I believe so. And what takes place is probably the following. The Church of Jesus Christ, who has, uh, there's no purpose for the Church of Jesus Christ in the tribulation period, The Church of Jesus Christ is going to be raptured out of this world. And then, probably, as is seen in other places, there is a gap, a period of time, maybe of days, or more likely weeks, maybe a few months, between the removal of the church out of the world and the beginning of the tribulation period. But the church today has seen the bones and flesh, sinew and skin of the dry bones vision come together. Israel's physical restoration has been taking place and then will come the spiritual restoration, which is the purpose of the tribulation period, when God is going to breathe his spirit into his people. So the question is this, how far have we reached the place where the physical coming together of the bones and the flesh and the sinew and skin have come together for God now to act in uh, saving his people, Israel. That's the question. We have come a long ways, have we not, in the restoration of Israel back to the land. Now, by the way, There is no requirement that every single Jewish person come back to the land. In fact, at the end, one of the things that's going to take place is that the angels are going to gather the elect together, which certainly is focused primarily on the nation of Israel. So Jesus said, not coming back until Israel is a believing nation. And they aren't a believing nation until God restores them back to himself at the end of the tribulation period. But that begins, that spiritual restoration begins, it is triggered by the Gog-Magog battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39. So, as believers in the Lord Jesus, and the question is, are we there yet? And the answer seems to be, yes. Now, keep in mind that God is not an American And he's not in a hurry that he does things in his own timing. 
And the rapture event, like the event of Jesus' birth into the world, as Paul says in Galatians, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law. And at just the right time, God is going to take his people, the church, out of this world so that he can turn his attention now to the great task of saving his people Israel and bringing them into the new covenant. And Paul guarantees us in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 28, that that is exactly what God is going to do on oath and for his own name's sake. He is going to do that. So while we do not know the day or the hour, the minute or the second, what we do know is that Israel's back in the land. They have been restored physically to a great extent, whether completely or not, that we do not know. But when that occurs, the church is going to be snatched out of the world and God is going to finish his dealings with his people Israel. So with that in mind, we need to uh, listen to what Jesus said when he finished his prophetic discourse. He's told his disciples, number one, be watchful. And so the question that you and I face, are we living in anticipation of the Lord's return? We can, Jesus said, discern the times, Matthew 16, just the basic times. Days and hours, no. So be watchful. Keep As you're living your life, keep one eye towards heaven. That's how Paul lived as he describes it in Philippians 3. Number two, Jesus said in his application of his prophetic discourse, to be prepared. That's a huge question, isn't it? Are you prepared? Am I prepared for his return? Starting with the fact, is Jesus Christ my personal Savior? And if he's not, the simplicity of the gospel to place your faith in the God-man, the Lord Jesus, whose death on the cross paid for all of our sins, and that when he rose from the dead, he conquered Satan, sin, and death, and now offers eternal life and the forgiveness of sins to all who would simply place their faith, trust him as Savior. And third, not only be watchful, be prepared, but be serving. Are you and I doing business for the Master? As I live my life, am I abiding as Jesus described it in John 15? Am I abiding in Jesus on a daily basis as I live my life uh, to please him and to honor him? Am I serving him in every way I possibly can? A great passage, Ezekiel 34 to 39, and I hope that this has, will prove to be helpful uh, as you think about the question, are we there yet? Is Jesus coming back soon? Mm-hmm.